This morning's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence people who are foolish people, Silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Here, honour the emperor. This is God's word. Thank you, Helena, for reading the scripture today. And uh, one of the joys of being able to be back together in physical worship is being able to see uh, the church in all of its demographics. Uh, last evening at the Saturday service, uh, there was a, a plethora of babies uh, who came yesterday, and uh, we were just talking about them the whole night, just how wonderful God has been with all of the different babies and all of their faces starting to to emerge. And this morning, so good to see all of you, especially uh, many of the older saints. We haven't seen you. For, I haven't seen you for, many, uh, for a while. We miss seeing you. Wish we could speak at length, but a wonderful uh, time to be together. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Caleb, and I'm one of the elders uh, at this church. And a blessed day to you if you're watching from home. We've been working through a series of messages focused on the theme of hope from First Peter written by the Apostle to the church in modern Turkey. And we've been looking at Peter's teaching on the identities and the realities of believing the good news, believing the gospel, which even angels long to look into. And this is the sixth sermon in this series. It's my prayer that as we hear it, we would hear God's call to holy living, to godly living. Please join me in prayer. Father, you are the God who speaks. And dress us now in your power and send your mighty spirit to glorify your Son. May these moments that we share be holy in your sight and help me, O God, to be strong and courageous. Show us once again our Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Well, it can be startling to realize that the Peter of the Gospels, full of emotion, 
of reaction, of strong words, of strong actions, even violence, fear, and betrayal, is the very same Peter that we have been reading from, the wise pastor who has been teaching us in this letter. Do you remember what he was like in his earlier days? When no one would speak, it was Peter who confessed boldly that Jesus was the Christ. He was so bold as to tell Jesus that he would never go to the cross, and Jesus had harsh words for him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter who unsheathed his sword and slashed off the ear of the high priest's servant, even though there were armed troops all around. And at the end of the Gospels, we read that he denied Jesus three times because he was afraid. So candid is this portrayal of Peter that many scholars wonder why would Christians, uh, why would the Bible present the early, one of the early leaders of Christianity in so poor a light? So the key question I like for us to have at the back of our minds, even as we are reading this text, is this. How did Peter change? What was the secret to his miraculous transformation? And I suggest to you that no matter how you feel about your spiritual condition or how you feel about someone else's spiritual condition, we can change. Well, the secret to that change is found in chapter 1 of our letter. The hope of new birth through the power of Jesus' resurrection. And then living in the living hope that that same Jesus will return. New birth and resurrection hope is what changed everything for Peter. And he's been teaching us that we set our hope on that reality. And in chapter 2, the letter turns to the transformed lives that we now live because we are still here on earth. Peter's father... Jonah had named him Simon, but it was his Jesus that renamed him the Rock or Peter. And the Rock has been teaching us that in Christ, all of us are living stones. We are born again living stones, built together with Peter into this holy temple founded on the great cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And so, armed with hope, and this identity that we are living stones, now, Peter says, we have good reasons for endurance. Verse 15 of our passage today will say that God's will for Christians was to silence the ignorance of foolish people, which tells us that the opponents and critics of the church, their Roman persecutors, uh, were, were opposed to their faith. And in living out transformed lives, Believers, silence them with godly living. For our text today, verses 11 to 17, we're going to look at this transformed life of living stones under two headings. First, war, and then peace, which are in your ministry guide. First, war on our fleshly passions. Now, it seems a paradox that the ones Peter summons to war, he first calls Beloved, because the ones you love are not actually the ones you ask to take up arms. Normally, you fight for them. You fight for the ones you love. Uh, that's what they told us in the SAF. But this is not a fight that Peter can fight for the church. It is a fight that believers 
are called to because each one of us is chosen by name and loved individually by God. 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, we are a people for God's own possession. And so Peter says, you, beloved, you, hear my teaching. Now this he does and he calls us sojourners and exiles in this world. Belonging to God means we do not belong to the world. And this is not the first time Peter has used a similar idea. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, you are elect exiles. Now, the believers he was writing to were literally scattered across Asia Minor, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they were literally scattered all over the place. But it also refers to their spiritual status. Chapter 1, verse 18, We have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We have exited the way of life of our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers. We no longer live as we did before we came to Christ. We have exited that way. Chapter 2, verse 5, We are God's spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. I confess that as a second-generation Christian, I have struggled sometimes to see myself as having been dramatically ransomed and dramatically changed because my conversion is not dramatic. I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my parents taught me the Bible from the time that I was young, and it feels very much like uh, I, was born, uh, you know, I was born in this environment and I stayed in this environment. I didn't experience a dramatic change. Yet the Bible tells us that every conversion, and my conversion, is dramatic and miraculous in God's eyes. None of us caused ourselves to be born again. And my parents did not cause me to be born again. If you've ever felt that your conversion is not very impressive, not very dramatic, not very exciting, well, consider this. Where would you be? Where would you be if Jesus had not come into your life, if He had not come into the life of your family? Where would you be? What a terrifying, self-centered life we would live otherwise if He had never come in. So whether we are second generation or first generation, let us never diminish that we have all been ransomed, brought together to be God's people. Once we were not a people, now we are a people. Christ is our new leader, our new king. And we have cut ties with this world, although we still live here. In the church, we are elect exiles together. I recently chanced across a Facebook post uh, that made me very stressed. Well, well, not stressed. It made me very upset. Uh, and my wife had to bear the burden of it as I, as I was just uh, going on and on. And the post said that true Christians who have a relationship with Jesus do not need to join or care about the church because you have a true relationship with Jesus. But it's so mistaken because that relationship that we have with Jesus that is so precious is precisely what we share in the church. We are elect exiles together. And that's why we delight in one another. Psalm 16 verse 3, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the ones in whom is all my delight. 
So what is it that we, beloved sojourners and exiles, what are we called to make war on? One would think that we fight the world that we came from, I guess. We challenge the culture that we now reject. But what does verse 11 say? What does Peter want us to fight? The answer is in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The war that we fight is a soul battle. The holy people of God fight it by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. That is the theater of conflict. That is our greatest fight. It is not outside of us, it is inside of us. In 1 Peter 4, we are told later on that while we live here, for the rest of the time in the flesh, we live no longer for human passions but for the will of God. And chapter 2 is now explained in detail. You can see the list of, of things there. The things that the Gentiles want to do, the unbelievers want to do, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, that's what unbelievers want to do. They live for pleasure. But when we came to Christ, those desires no longer control us. Yes, those desires still live with us, but they no longer control us. But notice also that chapter 4, verse 3, at the end of that slide, it actually ends with that phrase, lawless idolatry. So it means more, it means more than just these specific moral sins that he has named. Beyond the drinking parties and the orgies, which I think many in our respectable moral culture, we would say, yes, I, I mean, uh, I can't tell you the last time I was in an orgy, you know, but lawless idolatry I do struggle with. Idolatry refers to the worship of false gods that we make or the desire in our sinful nature to replace, supersede, or stray from God. The Apostle sketches what these works look the Apostle Paul sketches what these works look like in Galatians 5. You recognize that some of these words are similar to 1 Peter 4. You can recognize them: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and then at the end of the list, drunkenness and uh, orgies. You see them there, verse 21. But again, before your heart says, No, 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 I don't struggle with this, look at the middle of the list after idolatry and sorcery. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. You see, the passions of the flesh can be worldly and evil desires, yes. But the apostles also tell us that having inordinate, overpowering, excessive desire for neutral and good things can also be idols. Where else does our enmity and strife come from? Where else does jealousy and envy come from? Why do we have fits of rage and outbursts, even against the ones we love? I may want order and control so much that I cannot stand 
people who are sloppy and laissez-faire. I may desire comfort and security so much that I am closed to the changes that God brings into my life. I don't want to change. It can cause me to avoid conflict. It can cause me to avoid addressing conflict. I may want so much to be loved by my family members and the ones dear to me that I must have their affection. I must have their respect. And if they don't respond to me, if they don't respect me, I can't see anything in life. Everything seems bleak. It may be an idolatrous desire that I have to be free, to make my own choices, my decisions, my hand on the steering wheel. An idolatrous desire for power can lead me to insist that things go my way on my rules and that no one, not even God, can thwart my plans. It may be a sin habit. It may be the refusal to confront a sin habit or a comfort that we think we deserve because we've been so good. It may be a tradition that we must preserve or a change that we must drive through. All of this, friends, all of these are possible forms of idolatry. It is the passions of the flesh that lure us and entice us into temptation and eventually can kill your walk with God. It can cause us to fly into a rage when people question us or challenge us or lead us into misery when we are snubbed or disrespected by others. This idolatrous desire leads us to live for pleasure and for lust that defiles us and can cause us, can you see, 1 Peter 2, to despise and reject human authority. It can be a desire that comes from the world that leads us uh, according to what we see on Instagram or Pinterest and it drives how we feel in our ego, the pride of life that makes us feel good. It can drive harmful materialism so that we desire riches. We want to go from one country club to the next higher tier country club, the next higher tier of membership. And those who drive, uh, who are driven by that desire to be rich fall into temptation. It can drive us to seek out our own choice of Bible teachers, to avoid some leaders, to change churches, to justify our lifestyles instead of enduring sound teaching. Friends, Peter says, believers must abstain from the worldly passions. Of all of these forms, we must learn to say no to ourselves. No such desire should master us. As we studied Genesis in our last sermon series, I was struck by all the human examples we saw there. Do you remember them? Eve desired something good that God had made, but was forbidden. And when she wanted it so much, her desire fueled her resentment against God until finally she disobeyed. Her husband, desiring to please her to avoid conflict, chose the path of silence, which husbands often do. And he became complicit in her sin. Their son, Cain, lost the war against the passions of his flesh. He did not do well. He did not restrain anger. And jealousy was a sin that was crouching at his door and it mastered him. Noah, after the flood, chose drink. 
And he abandoned self-control, passed out on the floor like a drunk. And his son Ham did not love his father well, but was overcome by evil desire and cruelty and acted with disrespect. And so this story of overpowering desire goes on and on and on and into your life and mine. So what do we do? We make war on our flesh. Galatians 5 tells us that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We nail these desires to the tree where Jesus died, where our old selves died with Him. And practically, how do we do this? Uh, Pastor John Piper shares a practical account of how he, uh, how he made war on the everyday. And this account stood out to me because it was so everyday. It was not some great, uh, dramatic, unrelatable spiritual experience. It was so relatable. This is how it goes. It was a Sunday evening. He was there with his wife and his daughter. His daughter comes into the room and says, Mommy and I are going to watch TV together. So they open a laptop, they sit on the chair and they, and they watch. They don't say anything to Piper. They don't ask him. They don't explain. They don't try and involve him. They don't propose anything. They just leave him to do his own thing. And John Piper says, I felt shut out, ignored, and an enormous temptation to anger and self-pity, blaming, sullenness rose up within him. And in his mind, all he could hear was, poor little John Piper. But in that moment, God helped him see that that desire that moment of anger, that was not from God. That wasn't going to drive him to Christ. And so he chose not to say anything, not to flare up. He just went to his study and this is what he says. I went quietly to my study and I made war. I turned my mind, my heart towards the promises of God, towards the surety of the cross, the love of my Father, the wealth of my inheritance, the blessing of the Lord's day, which I had just experienced. It was a day of worship. And the patience of Christ, and that my wife and daughter were not snubbing me on purpose. I held those truths before my eyes, and I beat down the anger, self-pity, blaming, and sullenness. I beat it down until it died. And compared to the way things usually go, it was an amazing victory. Victory is possible over the passions of our flesh. Friends, so often we just give in. And God takes your and my holiness seriously. The question is whether we will. Will we take our holiness in every aspect of our lives seriously? And if the world saw us do that, what would they see? they would see honourable conduct. Also translated, excellent conduct. Verse 12. The life of war, the life of faith, should not be so privatised that no one can see it. What good is it if no one can see it? We live with holy witness before the world in every sphere of our lives. But do you see that in verse 12? Even if we do, 
it will also be said of us that we are evildoers. So none of us should live, according to verse 12, none of us should live with the fantasy that because we are making war on our flesh, because we are trying to please God, because we are living with honourable conduct, that the world is going to say, very good, good job, carry on. Expect to be called an evildoer. Expect to be slandered by the world. But in those circumstances, God's will for you and me is clear. Our duty is positive witness even under that pressure. On one hand, Peter gives an answer to the question of what is God's will for my life in verse 15. The answer is do good. And Peter there applies the teachings of his master from the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men so that others will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Peter says that this will happen on a certain day. When is this? When will suffering believers be vindicated? Our vindication will come on the day of visitation. Peter and the other apostles constantly look to this day as they write and they pastor. This is the day where every eye will behold Jesus and in full view of the world, He will come in judgment. And all the godly conduct, conduct, all the war-making will finally make sense on that day. In chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, believers abstain from a life of debauchery. And yes, believers will malign us and call us evildoers, but verse 5, they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge. Friends, this is good eschatology. It is how the study of the end times should work. The apostles model it for us. The apostles don't teach the church about global conspiracies, about apocalyptic signs. They don't feed carnal curiosity about how world affairs are going to pan out, whether the UN is going to do this or whether the UN is going to do that. And we are not called to shake our heads in self-righteousness against the world, good eschatology fills us with motivation for godly living. If we have our eyes fixed on the end times, we make war on our flesh. We live with honourable conduct and we long for the day where we see Jesus again. This is life in exile. And my favourite example of making this practical actually comes from the book of 2 Kings from a little girl from Israel whose name we don't know. Perhaps you remember this account. In the time of the divided kingdom, this little girl had been carried off from her homeland in the northern kingdom of Israel by the Syrians, the bad guys in the story, and she was forced to work for the army commander Naaman and his wife, probably as a domestic servant. She's just a child. She was taken from her family. But when her master Naaman became a leper, and was afflicted with this skin-eating disease, she had compassion and sympathy for her unbelieving master. And she says this to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now all this little girl did was that she did not live, listen to this, she did not live with an angry and vengeful spirit. She did not And she had every reason to hate her captors who took her from home. Her passions instead had no grip on her. She's the opposite of the prophet Jonah. She's the anti-Jonah. She did not live with that resentment against the Gentiles. 
Instead, a tender heart formed in her with affection for her master, and then she displayed honorable conduct. And all she told him, all she told her master was the little that she knew by faith. She didn't even really know the name of her God. She just told her unbelieving employers that there was a prophet who could heal. And then later on, Naaman turns to worship the God of Israel. Friends, what would it look like if we lived this way, making war on our flesh with honorable conduct before unbelievers? And what would it look like if we didn't? Would not the unbelievers look at us and say, well, their gospel is really just an excuse for them to do whatever they want. That's what Christians are. They use the grace of God. They do whatever they want. They use, their, they use freedom as a cover-up for evil. Well, this brings me to our second point, that we live at peace with the world being subject in society. Now, if believers are surprised that we wage war on our own sinful desires, it's probably surprising that we can have peace with the world and its authorities. Verse 13 is the first of three sections on being subject. That's this phrase. And this phrase is not you know, something that we would willingly or naturally gravitate towards. The first, it says, be subject to the authorities. The second, chapter 2.18, be subject to your masters. The third, wives, be subject to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1. And, and that's how we know that we are in a unit a unit of thought on subjection, which is submission, willingly setting aside our agenda. And I must admit to you that uh, in, in this text, as I looked at it, uh, I, I really struggled. Because in 2021, subjection and submission to authority makes us all feel very uncomfortable. Of course, we've lived with the, the obvious proof of how authority at every level, from national to community to local to, to family, even at the spousal level, all authority tends towards abuse, corruption, and self-interest. So how do we reconcile this command? Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, even the emperor, even the governor. How do we do this? The answer is in verse 13. It's for the Lord's sake. Friends, our safety is not dependent on how safe we can make ourselves by self-governance. You and I are not more safe because we can make our own choices. The testimony of Scripture is the exact opposite. In fact, the decisions that we make for ourselves are very often not in our self-interest according to our fleshly desire. But we are exiles from this world and the rules and the, and the logic of this world of self-protection, of self-interest, it actually no longer applies to us because we have a Savior who gave up His safety, gave up His self-interest for our sake, that, we, that He might be our King. And this is why we can trust Him in every instance. We don't even trust the authorities as we subject ourselves to them. We trust Him as He tells us to be subject to them. Look at how the authority of Jesus works 
in Psalm 72. The psalmist says, May He, our King, may He judge your people with righteousness and your people with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Christians can use these words as we think about our King because Jesus' great Davidic kingdom has come to us. That's what we have with this King. He's the one that makes us safe. He's the one that prospers us, protects us, and in every situation guards us. And that's why when the hymn writer Isaac Watts meditated on this psalm, all he could see was the good authority and rule of Jesus. And he writes in the hymn, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun. He writes these words, Blessings abound wherever He reigns. The prisoners leap to lose their chains. The weary find eternal rest. All who suffer want are blessed. Under this King, we are blessed and we are free. And we are free even to subject ourselves to authorities. Yes, even authorities who may take our lives. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter's readers are to be subject to the emperor. Call him supreme, which does not mean that he's supreme over God. It just means that there's no one supreme, no human authority supreme, a more supreme. In Peter's day, the reign of, Rome, of the Roman emperor Nero and even the two emperors after him, Domitian and Trajan, were all cruel and brutal to Christians. So let's be clear. Scripture does not say that we subject to the authorities when it is in our interest to do so. In fact, don't miss this. That not long after he writes this letter, the Roman authorities put the blame for the major fire that breaks out in Rome on Christians and they launch a crackdown, and they come for the leaders of the church, and they come for Peter, and he's martyred for his faith. But, those, but that reality does not nullify Peter's words here, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Besides the emperor, Peter names governors sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, Peter teaches that government enforces laws and incentivizes good behavior for the common good. And all of that comes from God. This is part of the doctrine of common grace, that God has provided government for the good of all, not just for Christians, but all. Even if the government is not Christian, even if the government is full of flaws. Now, I'm not making a plug for the government. But I am responding to the text. We should be thankful that God has put human government of all kinds in place. It is a gift from God that we can receive from Him. And so today, when you open your letterbox and you pull out your mail, I wonder if you would give thanks to God for government. Not because you like it, but because God has given it to us like the rain and the sun that falls on the wicked and the just together, God, the government is used by God to restrain our evil and to reward goodness. 
And so, to members, if you, members of the church, if you work in some form of pu- public service, know that the work that God has called you to is good work. God uses you and God uses your responsibilities. Whether you work at LTA, NEA, uh, PUB, HDB, God uses your work to do good for others. Let's praise God for that. And to be a servant of God means my will is no longer my own. We freely and willingly make His agenda our own. We are ready to obey, to comply, to submit to Him. Sometimes servanthood may mean, that, uh, may mean criticism and that we are maligned. It may mean smelly feet and dirty floors. But Christians choose to serve because God has chosen us to serve. We willingly abstain from fleshly passions and choose to serve Him and we do not use freedom to cover up our evil desires. In fact, we want to please Him from deep within. Peter has been describing this new spiritual reality where we willingly live this way and it's actually been promised from Old Testament times. Look in Ezekiel 36 where God promises a new covenant where He will do an amazing new work inside His people. God's people do not uh, do not uh, uh, obey God reluctantly. No, we do so willingly. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the new birth that Peter himself experienced. This radical change of desire. This is what new hearts want. We serve God from deep within. We are His servants. How does this, what does this look like? Well, I love the simple four statements that Peter gives in verse 17. From the general to the specific, what do the servants of God do? First, they honour everyone. We respect every human being made in the image of God with no harsh words, no sarcastic comments for people who are made in the image of God. But we honour them from the greatest to the least. Second, they show a special love for those who are part of the brotherhood meaning the church. We show other Christians the unconditional active love of God. Yes, we honour everyone, but we honour especially brothers and sisters in the local church. And I love this idea of how Peter, who betrayed Jesus, but then met him again after his resurrection, Jesus tells Peter, you now tend my sheep. And this Peter tells the flock, love one another. This is the new commandment that we have from Peter and from Christ by which all men shall know that we are Christ's disciples. Third, we fear God. We reverence Him. We honour Him as holy in worship, in our prayers, in how we hear His words. And friends, I hope you will not be offended by this, but I wonder if you struggle like I struggle with multitasking during worship. 
And I struggle with this, especially when I'm live streaming at home. I've got multiple screens open. Sometimes I'm really comfortable. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not even really dressed, to be honest. I'm half sprawled on the floor. I'm doing maybe three or four other things at the same time. Friends, if that's our temptation, we need to stop. If that's our temptation right here in this room, if you've been tempted to multitask as you're worshipping God, can I say this without offence, without any intent to offend? Stop. If you can't fear God in worship, where in your life are you fearing God? What habits do we need to change? Beginning now. If we are going to make war on our flesh, fear God. It should change how we speak and how we think about one another if we feared Him. Can I urge us to worship God in holy fear? If your phone is a distraction, brothers and sisters, get a paper Bible. If you're tired, start on Saturday night preparing for worship. Now, fourth, and Peter returns to that earlier application, to honour the emperor. You see, I don't know if we can really live this way and these just simple four instructions, honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. I don't know if we can really respond to this unless we are determined to make war on our flesh. There's just no way. It's just words otherwise. And so I close by pointing to you to this painting by Caravaggio, which hangs in Rome in the Santa de Popolo. Peter here is an old man, crucified by the Roman government, the same government he told us to be subject to. And church tradition tells us that when they came for him after that fire, and they came and they took this pastor from the church, and they were to put him to death, they wanted to crucify him. Church tradition tells us that Peter said, don't crucify me in the same way that my Jesus was crucified. Hang me upside down. Peter told them he was not worthy to die as his master died. Martyred for his Jesus, in this painting, Peter's eyes are not looking at you, they're not looking at me, they're looking at the bottom left-hand side of the painting where the physical crucifix would have been placed in that church. Peter's eyes are fixed on the cross where his Jesus died. I invite you to consider Simon Peter, this man of war and peace, and his transformation, which was the most, one of the most gripping that we see in Scripture. In his life, he lived with strong, fleshly passions and desires. We've seen that. But look at his change. How did it happen? He was born again. He had new desires. He was given a new name. Made a living stone, built on Christ. And having made war against the passions of his flesh, having lived Honorably, before the unbelieving world, he was subject to the authorities and had peace with them, even at the cost of his life. And his freedom 
was not used as a cover-up because he served God, not his own desire. And having served Him, he gave up his life and he gained everything. I invite you to bow with me. If you're watching this and you've not experienced this new birth, if you've not experienced this inner transformation that comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you must be born again. Can you see the ruin that you've made of your life, having turned from God and rebelled against Him? But Christ Jesus was sent into the world to seek and save the lost, and He seeks us now. He promises to give us a new heart. If we will leave sin and self, idols and worldliness, and respond in faith and tell Him, yes, Jesus, I will follow You, even if it costs me everything. The servants of God here at GBC, what has our Lord said to us? Are we fighting for holiness? Do we need to make war on our idols? Are we striving to keep ourselves safe? Or do we trust God so that we can be subject to authorities without fear? Will we use our freedoms to serve Him even if it costs us everything? Great God, You are our highest good and our great reward. We pray that You would occupy our hearts. Help us not cultivate sinful habits and idolatrous desires. Meet us in the daily fight on Monday and Tuesday and every day as we make holy war on our idols. Grow in us godly desires. Lord Jesus, as you were subject and submissive to your Father's will and to authorities, help us trust you. If sorrow, persecution or death be ours, Help us to be faithful to you. And we thank you for the testimony of our brother, Peter. We ask that your spirit would help us to bring Jesus Christ glory in all that we think, in all that we do, because he is worthy, so worthy of glory and praise. Amen.